Jesus Christ, our intention this morning is to look at one of those passages which reveals that Jesus, in contrast to what is sometimes thought about him or talked about him, Jesus was never a victim in the sense that Jesus was not crucified as a consequence of his life and his teachings and his actions, humanly speaking. We're not to say or think that it was the deeds of Jesus that finally caught up with him so that he was arrested by the Jews and handed over to the Romans to be crucified. In fact, if those who had heard Jesus speak and teach had really been listening carefully to what he had been preaching, no one could really say at the end of the day that the crucifixion and death of Jesus was a complete surprise to him or certainly to anyone. And here's one example this morning in front of us in in John 10. In our passage, we hear Jesus describing himself as the good shepherd who came to lay down his life for the sheep. And so by these words already, he's telling us that what what happened to him was intentional. It was, in fact, the divine plan. It was ordained by the Father. It was prophesied and foreshadowed already in the Old Testament. God himself had come to his people in Christ to seek and to save them. And he did not leave his people without hope. He did not leave us tormented in the misery of our sin. And Jesus knew this of himself. And he identified himself as the one who came, who would, be, who would give his life for our life. He, he saw himself as the one who came intentionally to do what was necessary to free us from our bondage to sin, and to rescue us from our eternal death in hell. Our theme then this morning, as we look at John 10, verses 11 to 18, is this. Jesus declares himself to be the good shepherd. Jesus declares himself to be the good shepherd. And we'll see that he gives evidence of this, that he is the good shepherd, by giving three qualifications. In the first place, uh, he knows and is known by his own. In the second place, he is loved by the Father. And in the third place, he is willing and able to save the sheep. But as Jesus declares himself to be the good shepherd, we see that the first qualification to this office is that he knows and is known by his own. We heard him say in verse 14 as we read, I know my own and mine own know me. That's what we're basing this mostly on. Now, the Bible, as as you have may have heard before, many times in fact, uh, the Bible uses the word know in a very specific way. Uh, When the Bible uses the word know, it it, uh, more often uh, does not mean merely the way we say know. You say, I know John Smith, and what you mean by that is that you know him in a very intellectual way. Uh, You have an awareness of someone uh, uh, or something. Um, It refers to an... uh, But when the Bible uh, speaks of the word know, knowing something, I know my sheep and my sheep know me, uh, when the Bible uses that word, it uses it to describe a very intimate relationship. There's a particular class of people in the Bible. They're called sheep. And biblically, the sheep are God's people. That's why when Jesus says, when he returns, he will separate the sheep from the goats. The sheep represent quite often God's people, his beloved, his chosen and precious, his treasured possession, 
the one in whom he delights. And Jesus calls them my own. And he's referring to those with whom he has a, an intimate relationship. In verse 29, he will speak of his sheep as those whom the Father has given him. These are the ones whose names are written in the book of life. These are the ones who are appointed to eternal life. Those predestined to, be, to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ. Those chosen before the foundation of the world was laid. So that they should be holy and blameless in the sight of God through Jesus Christ. And the good shepherd knows these sheep. He could and he can identify them. And so Jesus could therefore not merely announce a general call, as when he says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But Jesus could also issue specific calls, as when he called Peter to himself, to follow him. And in fact, to all his disciples, he says to them, come, follow me. He knows every one of his sheep by name. He looks upon his church even as we are assembled today for worship. And he knows those who are his. And when we speak that way, it doesn't mean that we are on some kind of a waiting list. Perhaps we'll get called, perhaps we won't. We're awaiting the day when we'll be taken to heaven. It means that God knows us and cares for us now. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. It means that God desires to have and he in fact establishes a personal relationship with us. He, he doesn't just know us as, as part of a group here called, called St. Albert Canadian Reformed Church. He knows each and every one of us personally. And he loves us with that intimate love by which he loves his own. He knows our particular stresses he knows exactly what we need. He knows what is best for us specifically. He knows the specific sinful habits that we personally struggle with. He knows how much we still need to grow. He knows our strengths. He knows our weaknesses. Jesus knows us that intimately. He says, I know my sheep. But that's only the half of it. Jesus tells us here that we also know him. In a mysterious way that we can never fully understand in this life, we are enabled to know the Lord. And I say mysterious because the Spirit, like the wind, blows wherever He wills. We can't fully explain how is it that we know Jesus, but we do. We believe in Him. We stand on this solid ground that there is no other Savior, no Lord, no mediator, no advocate like our Jesus, who can be compared to our Jesus in a mysterious way worked in our hearts by his Holy Spirit we love him we trust in him we trust him and when he speaks we hear his voice because we are his I read one time of someone visiting a Middle Eastern country and he was watching shepherds in a field bringing their flocks to a well for watering and while they were watering at that well, all the sheep, of course, were intermingling so that the visitor was left wondering how in the world would these shepherds ever get their own sheep back out of this grand mix that was going on here. But he said he observed that the shepherds would simply begin to leave 
and they would utter a, a particular call, a distinctive call, and their sheep would immediately leave the pack and follow their shepherd. They know the voice of their master, as do we. We know because we are the sheep of Jesus. Think as well of how many answered the call of Jesus during his ministry. The disciples who were fishermen, they leave their nets and their loved ones and they follow Jesus. Matthew leaves his tax table. And though we don't know if the other disciples had different vocations, we know that they also left them and they followed Jesus. Think of Zacchaeus, the tax collector, a very rich man. And he had gotten that way by robbing people. Many blind, lame, even deaf people followed Jesus. Even those who were dead knew the voice of Jesus and awoke. In verse 16, he speaks of other sheep who are not of this fold. And he was speaking of those who are not of the nation of Israel, Gentiles. And already during his ministry, we hear of Greeks coming to him. A Roman centurion, a Samaritan woman, a Gadarene demoniac, and many, many more. These two belonged to him and they knew his voice. Because that's what he came to do. Jesus came as the great shepherd, the good shepherd, to seek and save those who were lost. He came to be a light to the Gentiles. And that's why when he left this earth, he gave us this great commission, as we call it, to the church in Matthew 28, to make disciples of all nations. And he promises at that time that he would be with us always. That is, that he himself would continue his work through his spirit. And so in the book of Acts, we hear the command to the disciples to be witnesses to the ends of the earth. And as they go off preaching, we hear of Ethiopians and Cretans and Romans and Greeks joining the church because they all knew his voice and they followed him. And beloved, here we are today as those who have heard the voice of Jesus and we have recognized it and we follow him. And his voice, that is the gospel, continues to go out into all the world today. There are Christians today of every race, language, and culture who are members of the Holy Catholic Church, all confessing Christ, one flock with one shepherd who hear his voice in his word and in the preaching of that word. And they surrender their hearts to him. And they are not ashamed to call him Lord. That is why Jesus is the good shepherd because he knows his sheep and his sheep know him. A second qualification possessed by Jesus is that he is loved by the Father. In verse 15, Jesus uses that intimate term once again. He says, my Father knows me. In other words, what he's saying is that the good pleasure of the Father is focused on the Son. Jesus is the Son in whom the Father delights in. There's a special, unique relationship between the Father and the Son that does not exist with any other being or created being. In Matthew 11 verse 27, Jesus says, No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son. Jesus knows the Father and is known by Him. In the biblical sense, there is that loving, intimate fellowship in their relationship. But why is it important that we know this? 
And we define this in this way. To understand that Jesus is distinguishing himself. He is standing above and apart. All the false shepherds. All those, the hired hands. Who came before him. And at the time of his ministry. And he makes that distinction. They are not the son. Who is loved by the father. I am. What sets Jesus particularly apart. Is his relationship to his father. That that's what gives the love of Jesus for his sheep its unique character. It's rooted in the relationship that he first has with his father. You see, Jesus was not some radical upstart, some activist who, say, was disturbed about how the people were being treated and decided to stand up for them. Jesus was not some upstart who got tired of the way people were being treated and decided to do something about it. He is the second person of the divine trinity. He dwelt in the love of the Father from all eternity. He shared the Father's glory, being in very nature God, as Paul tells us in Philippians 2. He covenanted with the Father before the world was created to save His people from their sins. That's using the, lang the language of Ephesians 1. Well, how is this a benefit to us? Well, simply this. Because it gives us a bond with the Father that cannot be broken. Why? Because God the Father loves us through Christ His Son. We can say it this way. The basis of our relationship with God the Father is Jesus. And Jesus has an unbreakable bond with the Father. He is loved by the Father. And so it is impossible that God the Father would ever reject us. Because He loves us in and through Jesus, His Son. The Father's love for us, we may say, is our guarantee that His love for us will never fail. Verse 17 tells us why the Father loves the Son so deeply. Because He is willing to lay down His life and take it up again. You see, the Father loves the sheep. That's you and I. But if we would have life, if we would be saved, then another life must be laid down. That of the Son. And Jesus, the Son of God, was willing to do that. He was willing to bear the shame of the cross. He was willing to bear the sting of death. He was willing to, to bear the unimaginable suffering of being separated from His Father when He was made a curse for us on the cross. What then? As Paul reminds us in Romans 8, what can separate us from the love of God? You know, if we're honest... We would confess that the hardest thing for us as Christians in this life is, is not the rejection of, of friends and relatives when we turn to Christ, though that is, it stings a lot in, indeed. It's not even the wicked ways of the world. It's not even the hatred that the world throws at us. If we're honest as Christians, we would admit that what more often torments us if we are truly converted is the presence of ongoing sin in our lives. We look at ourselves. We look at what we should be and what we are. We still see ourselves losing it. We're getting angry. We lie sometimes so easily. We deceive people. 
We're impatient. We're irritable with our spouses, with our children. We still see so much selfishness and pride in us. We see that we don't love the Lord as we know we should. We are slothful in spiritual growth. It's, it's frustrating, isn't it? It can at times even shake our confidence. It can make us think, how could I possibly be a Christian? How could I ever claim to possess eternal life when I'm still so stubbornly sinful? But beloved, in these times, we remember that God loves us in Christ that our relationship with Him is built not on how well we do, but what Christ has done. It's built upon the solid foundation of the love between the Father and the Son. It's built upon the foundation that our Good Shepherd is known and loved by God the Father. That's what keeps us going in this life. But as Jesus declares Himself to be the Good Shepherd, we see a third qualification that he is willing and able to save the sheep. Listen again to verses 12 through 15. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. The false shepherds are not willing, and certainly were not willing at the time of Jesus to do what was absolutely necessary for the good of the sheep. They had to, in fact, lay down their lives for them. The assumption here being that the sheep, that is the church, are in mortal danger, indeed the fires of hell. And the ones who were supposed to be looking after the sheep were not doing their duty. But the true shepherd, the good shepherd, had now come into the world. And Jesus now reveals himself as that good shepherd. Now, to understand this, we have to jump into the middle of a rather heated discussion that was going on here, that begins back in chapter 9. And we have to go back and see that what brought up, uh, what, what really brought upon, uh, uh, the, the, upon them these very strong words of Jesus. In chapter 9, we read of Jesus encountering a man who had been blind from birth. And he took pity on him, as Jesus often did, and he healed him of his blindness by putting clay mixed with his own saliva on the man's eyes. And that's when the Pharisees took issue. And they began saying things like, it's the Sabbath. What kind of a man of God is this who works on the Sabbath? And they call the blind man in and his parents and they interrogate them. And then they contemptuously chase the blind man out from their presence. But then listen to verses 35 to 41. This is chapter 9. Jesus heard that they had cast him out and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him. And it is him who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those those who see may become blind. 
Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, We see, your guilt remains. And that's when Jesus begins in chapter 10 to chastise them for their hypocrisy as he does at other times. And he begins to explain to them why they had reacted to him in this way. Because they were false shepherds. And he declares himself to be, in contrast to them, the good shepherd. He makes a a distinction between himself and the Pharisees. They were false shepherds. They were hired hands. He was the good shepherd, the true shepherd. He was willing to lay down his life for the sheep. They were not. The Greek translated the good shepherd here. The word good describes the work that Jesus performs. That work is free from defects. It's beautiful in its uniqueness. It describes Jesus as the only one who is worthy of that name, in contrast to the false shepherds who were leading Israel at that time. Jesus is the exceptional, incomparable shepherd. And the term shepherd, of course, is a familiar biblical term. Perhaps the most familiar passage that we know this word is, uh, from is, is uh, Psalm 23, in which David confesses, the Lord is my shepherd. Maybe our boys and girls have had to memorize Psalm 23 for school or at home. For many of us, it's a very beloved passage in the Bible. And we understand when David says, the Lord is my shepherd, we understand what that implies. A shepherd is one who is a caregiver to his flock, one who watches over them to protect them, one who feeds them and tends them, who goes after them when they stray, who leads them in the right path. And so we're very familiar with with Psalm 23, but there's another passage in the Old Testament that actually sets the stage for this declaration of Jesus, that he is the good shepherd. In Ezekiel 34, in fact, the Lord comes to his people, and that is to the leaders of his people, and he rebukes them for their irresponsible and careless ways toward his people. He accuses them in Ezekiel 34 of fattening themselves and ignoring the weak and the struggling of his flock. And the people, he said, were wandering into treacherous paths, and no one was seeking them. And so God promises in Ezekiel 34, starting at verse 9, He says, Therefore you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my sheep at their hand, and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths, that they may not be food for them. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he's among his sheep that may have scattered, so will I seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they have scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries, and will bring them into their own land, and I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, by the ravines, and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture, and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. 
There they shall lie down in good grazing land, and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my people, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. And so Jesus came in fulfillment of this prophecy the incarnate Son of God and God Himself, to provide the care and the protection that the sheep were sorely lacking. Jesus came to make straight what long was crooked. He would come to heal and restore the straying and the wounded. But what Israel didn't understand is that Jesus would do this by laying down His own life for the sheep. He would lay it down on behalf of the sheep. This is something that he must do in our place. Something that we cannot do for ourselves. The price for our life would be his life. His death would be substitutionary. He would do it in our place. And Jesus declares in verse 18 that he was both willing and able to do this. He had authority to lay down his life and to take it up again, which, of course, points us to his resurrection. That's how the death of Jesus far exceeds any other martyr that the world can produce. Jesus would lay down his life, but he would take it up again at his resurrection, in which he would defeat sin and death once and for all for us. And there's so many things we can learn from this passage, but the intent of this sermon at least. And the thing we want to catch is that Jesus announces all of this beforehand, before it happens. And John 10 is just one example of this. Of the many times Jesus spoke of the fact that he would die, that he would die, that he came in fact to die, and that his death was inevitable. There are many places in the Gospels where Jesus mentions this. And even if you go back to the Old Testament, Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, there's so many passages that declares that Jesus in fact came to do this. He came fully understanding that his calling was to fulfill all that had been spoken of him by the Old Testament prophets, and he came willing to lay down his life, to give it up, to surrender his life, to hand over his life to those who would execute him. He came to do this for his beloved sheep. That's us. And congregation, as our thoughts turn to what Good Friday and Easter Sunday once again, let us remember that we too are counted among the sheep for whom Christ the great shepherd laid down his life. Writing to the New Testament church, Peter reminds us that we were like sheep going astray. This is addressed to us. We were like sheep going astray, but now we have returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. In Hebrews 13 verse 20, Jesus is called that great shepherd of the sheep, that is of the, of the church. Without and apart from Christ, We had no hope. We were heading for certain destruction. In this life, there are no other helps. There are no princes, no chariots, no mortal men in which we may trust who can really save us.
But Jesus saves. And only Jesus saves. In an act of incomparable mercy and love, Jesus laid down his life for us. He has sought us and he has bought us by his precious blood. Jesus was no victim. He is the victor. And in him, so are we. Amen.